would I have done some things differently? And the answer is yes, because it's back to that leverage thing. I mm. didn't understand leverage enough of what I could leverage, whether it's technology, education, people, systems, products. Didn't, I just didn't grasp that until I was probably into my 50s, probably. I just tried to do everything myself, which I regret that. I, I could have been much faster, bigger, quicker, sooner if I hadn't done that. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Dave Van Horn, man. Finally. What's going on, brother? How you been? Dude, I've been freaking awesome, man. How are you? Good. I love people to take action, so I think I'm in the right place. I'm headed to the inaction group where I've taken all this action, and now I'm ready to chill. Yeah, I actually love that. I think that's a point of a conversation that I want to discuss with you. But first, let's give a general intro of who you are, what you do, and then let's get into the topic that you and I were just discussing off camera a bit. Sure. Who is Dave Van Horn? A workaholic. <laughs> but anyhow, I was just a, I say just a real estate guy. But yeah, I came from humble beginnings and started to build my wealth through accumulation of real estate, acquiring rental properties and things like that. I came at it from the real estate end more than the investor end in the beginning. I had also been a contractor, things like that. Was a realtor for 35 years, owned a title company, sold insurance, did a lot of different things. But I think it really started to take off with the building of my network. And um, things changed for me dramatically when I formed a group called Ring, which was Real Estate Investor Networking Group. And that was pre-Meetup. Meetup didn't exist. You oh, man. Local RIA groups, maybe. But my secret sauce was we had a meal together. And that's how we got to know each other better. And you were allowed to bring your deals to the meetings. And uh, we would bring in some experts, too, and some opportunities and things like that. And uh, that group grew in a five, six-year period. It started out with 12 people at lunch. And it grew to be five states, six cities from Baltimore to New York, and 8,000 people in the database. And then that kind of grew into, I actually, when I formed PR in the very beginning, I had that initial group of potentially investors, which became PPR, it's known as PPR Capital Management today. And obviously that organic group of really just trust and confidence and relationships over a long period of time developed into who we are today, which in some ways... The, the business is like its own bank, if you think about it. And that's one of our competitive advantages is we can raise unlimited private equity, uh, which not too many folks can do. And some people can, but the that gives us an edge, a competitive edge. And I think that's today the unique thing about PPR is it's growing whether I'm there or not, too. So that's the cool part today. Today, I'm executive chairman of our board. So I'm no longer the CEO. I have a guy, Steve Meyer, who came over from SEI. I had been at SEI for 29 years. And SEI is publicly traded. They have $1.3 trillion under management. Casual. So he came over and he's our CEO now. So it's exciting. We're in an interesting place to really scale PPR 
capital management from where it is today. And we're trying to scale not so much people under management. It's more about assets under management and equity under management than it is personnel under management. So we're not... And then, and then what's, the size, what's the size of that company today? We have 30 employees and we're fast approaching 700 million in assets. And we're 275 million in private equity right now, but it's private equity that keeps getting recycled because we deal, I'd say 75, 80% of our book of business is non-performing mortgages and some commercial mortgages and some performing mortgages. But the majority of it is delinquent. First mortgages is the majority of the book of business. So that money keeps recycling. So it's not like a you know, you put money in a syndication, it sits there and it comes back. Yeah, three to five years later. Our money's constantly moving. It's constantly growing, but it's constantly moving too. So it's a little bit different model. Gotcha. What inflection point caused you to step out of the CEO role and position yourself under the board of directors? Because I've talked to a bunch of I've talked to a bunch of different guys on here that have done similar things and they've all echoed the same quote that I really like and I internalized where they said, For my business to get to the level that it deserves to be at, it requires me to remove myself. Absolutely. 150%. It's nice to feel wanted and needed and no one can do it like you, but you get to a point where the company can no longer grow, continue to grow at that pace. You you get to a point where you or you and your partners have taken the entity to as far as you can take it. And I'm not saying you couldn't continue on that way. You could, but you would just get incremental growth. It wouldn't be dramatic. What got you here won't take you there. Correct. It's just some companies will change. They start out with a bookkeeper and then next thing you know, they have a controller and the next thing they have a CFO or 10 years later, that first CFO doesn't fit anymore. That's normal. It's no different with owners or CEO. And then the other thing is that there's other sayings I hear in back of my mind. The more you work in the business, the less it's worth, those kinds of things. There's a lot of truth to some of that. And even in my case, I'm an executive chairman, so I'm staying on. I didn't really exit completely, but I'm able to focus on what I like to do, what I do best. And that there's a lot to be said for that. And I've had a lot of great coaching and mentoring over the years. And one of the best was from a guy named Lewis Schiff. He's the author of Business Brilliant and Birthing a Giants up in New York. And uh, Lewis had always used to ask me this question all the time when he was coaching me. He would say, what's the one thing that you can leverage in the next six to 12 months that's going to catapult you? The funny thing is he would ask me that same question every couple months and it would be different answers. Now, you can also say that about your personal life too. But if you notice, he didn't say five things or 25 things. He said one thing. He didn't say, he said catapult, which is the 10x type mindset, right? What's really going to because if you're trying to 100x your business versus double your business, it's dramatically different decisions and things that would be made. But it is a great question. And the one thing is like the book, right? What's the thing that I think a lot of people are familiar with? It's a great book. But the so there's a lot to be said for that question when you're really trying to move the needle. And the one thing that catapult at this point is no longer me. It's actually Mr. Meyer at this point because he actually scaled a business when he was in SEI. They had about a hundred and something employees. And when he left, there was like three to 4,000 employees. And then Ooh. they were doing, I think their net revenue when he started was like eight and a half million or something. It was like 650 million when he left. That's really scaling a business, right? So it's Steve going to do it better than me. Yeah. In some ways, I think so. And then it also could revolve around professionalism, 
fund management. I just uh, bringing on a new board member right now, and I'm looking to potentially get two more. And a lot of times I'm doing a gap analysis on what's the business missing? What gaps could we fill? What talent could we bring in? Who has, I call it relationship capital, right? Mm. It's a big piece that no one really talks about, especially when it comes like a company like ours, where a lot of it hinges on our JV partners and our relationships with our operators or whatever. If we didn't have those key relationships, PPR would have 150 employees instead of 30, right? So it would be, so those things are really important, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. We all have a different way of getting far along the path, so to speak, but... Yeah, so you valued the EQ even more so than the IQ. Yes, that's well said. So yeah, I think I think there's a lot to be said for the relationship management that gets lost in the way sometimes because you can only know so much. You're only good at so many things. You mentioned what spurred this on. I'd say it was a couple of years ago. I mentioned that I had sold insurance years ago and we had done a little bit of financial planning back then. And the one thing you learned was people or companies don't plan to fail, they fail to plan, right? And as you're building a business, we're approaching a billion dollars quickly. I know Steve's going to take it into the multiple billions and it starts to get more and more serious. And you need to plan for that, plan for the future. And you don't want it to hint, you don't want your company to hinge on you. I'm having these conversations with my oldest son right now, who has the construction company that I had today, right? And it's like everything revolves around him still. And it's problematic because something happens to him, the whole spigot of money shuts off, the business shuts down, there's no decision-making, that kind of thing. So I think what I like about us is we do have a board of directors, we do have a CF, CEO, we do have an investment committee, those types of things. We do have portfolio managers. There's a lot of things in place. Years ago, I was the guy raising capital. Today, there's a whole investor relations department, right? There's a bunch of people that are doing what I used to do, so to speak. So it's, I think you're building in redundancy is piece of it. And then it's, it's really the art is trying to get the organization to where it can grow on its own, I think, than it is to grow with you there all the time. I think that's the real, that's the exciting part. Then you can turn around and go do it again. Or you can focus on your next or giving back or whatever your purpose might be. Exactly. And then y'all are already over a hundred million in revenue, right? You're like 150 plus. Yeah, it's funny. The year-end stuff will be coming out right now, right about now. Yeah, the gross revenue is growing quite a bit. And no, it's exciting. You have, you could just feel the growth. Right now we, uh, our theme for the year is ready to launch, right? So we know that the companies, we're like a 15-year-old startup kind of thing. We've shifted our model about two years ago to more of a fund-to-funds model. We used to be asset managers, and today we're capital managers, right? So it's there's been a shift in what we do, more diversified type fund. And no, it's exciting. I think, yeah. Yeah. And I love having conversations like this because I'm someone that's sitting present day in the seat that you were years and years ago <clears throat> to where I'm the one that's doing everything. Everything revolves around me. And these conversations aren't really had on podcasts like this because it's it's not sexy to talk about, right? We're talking about systems, process, redundancy, SOPs. Okay, if I have to say something twice, let me document it to make sure I don't have to say it again. Let me have a process for every single thing. And it's not sexy. It's not a sexy part of entrepreneurship that's discussed. But what I like talking about it on these podcasts is because... What it does is, what it does is for all the people that are listening that are in that beginning stage, maybe you have a seven figure business and you're looking to make the jump to eight. Maybe you're in that corporate job looking to start your first business. You need to know the progression for what this roadmap looks like for success. 
because if you don't have these conversations and you're going to spin your wheels and you're going to spend decades and decades trying to wing it and figure it out when you could just listen to what Dave's saying right now and follow the roadmap and be able to better figure it out faster. So on that point, you said something that was really good. And I want to hit on this now. You said next, focus on what's next. And that's what you and I were talking about before we started airing here. So talk about your philosophies around the word next. <laughs> You're putting me on the spot there. But Podcast now, host, baby. Yes, it's good. It's good. A lot of people don't talk about their next. They're constantly in, I'll call it accumulation mode instead of say preservation mode or, and what happens when, how do you know when you've arrived, so to speak? You mm -hmm. have it all. Most people are just going on the treadmill and they're always progressing, always progressing, always, which is fine. You could get to a point where when is there enough zeros on your Excel sheet? When is there... Like I'm building this to be, it's a nine figure company. It's going to be sold or taken public. That's the goal. Everybody knows it. All the staff are part owners of the company. We're excited. We're building a machine and we're scaling something and we know we're building it to sell. It's not like it's a secret. We're very transparent about it. So that's one thing. But also even for you as an individual, it's like, how do you know when you're living your best life or your ideal life? And you hear a lot of talk about that. But for me, big component for me as I got older and wiser is how am I spending my time? What do I like to do? How am I? I'm a big energy guy. I'm a big sleep guy. And everybody's ideal day, you hear the, the miracle mornings and the different things. And, and everybody has a different version of some of that, right? And uh, I'm not an alarm guy. I don't even like my alarm set to go catch a flight. Right? Like, <laughs> I don't want to. Fair. If I, I'm not living my best life if the alarm's going off. In my mind, very fair. I'm lazier. I don't want to get up or do stuff. I do. And I exercise every day. I do a lot of the same things other people do. I do yoga once a week. I meditate. I do all these different things, just like every, a lot of entrepreneurs do. And I do like to read a lot and I write a lot. So yeah, I'm probably very similar to some of the other people you'll hear. What's it? James Clear with the habits and things like that. They're all, that's all good and all. You never hear anybody talk about my goal is to not have any goals. I just want that's fair. To do whatever the F I want, whatever I want with whoever I want, which is what this podcast is about. That's why it's kind of brought on. Now, hey guys. Can you, believe that guy, can you believe that an executive chairman just said his goal is to not have any goals? I think that's the best. Now you gotta take that with a grain of salt, but it's but I'll be honest. Hey, what meeting do I really like to attend? I like the meeting with no agenda. Me and you were just having a conversation for a cup of coffee in Amsterdam or somewhere. I don't know. I don't know say less, Dave. Let's book a plane. Yeah, there you go. So let's hop like, on. I want to be. Able, I want to be able to work from wherever I want, whenever I want. I don't want KPIs. I'll go kick ass and go through a brick freaking wall for somebody, but I don't need somebody to micromanage me or anything. Just give me a good reason. Yeah, I'm curious. I'll wake up anyway. I'll go out there and do it anyway. Exactly. I'm curious now that you're at a stage like 15 years, some odd deep, and you could, you can actually say longer from the beginning of your career, learning all these skills that you have today. I'm curious now that you're here to a point where you can move yourself into a chair position and you can sit back, not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily label it taking your foot off the gas. It's just putting your foot on the gas pedal that looks different. You know what I mean? So what, looking back at everything, I don't like asking the question, if you could do it all over again, would you do it differently? But oh, yeah. if I can make it a little sexier, if I could try to rephrase the question a bit, I would ask, 
do you find it more do you find it more worth it <clears throat> for you to have done it this way and for people for the entrepreneur to build something and then systematize it and exit it almost like a David Osborne and that's a mentor of mine that says I do we do they do and then you can do what you want and earn the right or would you have gone back and been like I would have enjoyed the journey a bit more in the build, in the building process and figured out how to bake a little bit more fun and a little bit more of the Amsterdam's and the coffees in Amsterdam while I was building everything. Or do you think it wouldn't have grown to what it was or what it deserved to be if you would have done that? I'm probably more of the, what I did was more of the first version where it was a lot of hard work, some luck. Pedal to the floor, yeah. Grind, always worked two jobs, always did that. But I do have regrets, like I could have spent more time with the kids or grandkids or nobody ever regrets that they didn't work more overtime on the weekend or something. But at the same time, would I have done some things differently? And the answer is yes, because it's back to that leverage thing. I Mm. didn't understand leverage enough of what I could leverage, whether it's technology, education, people, systems, products. Didn't, I just didn't grasp that till I was probably into my 50s, probably, like where I really understood the concept of leveraging other people's talents and things like that. I just tried to do everything myself, which I regret that. It, I could have been much faster, bigger, quicker, sooner if I hadn't done that. And I don't want to say I don't have any goals, too. That's naive. I do. Everyone understands what you're talking they, about. They you're good. I just have different ones today. They're more yeah. more on a personal level, more on than, say, the company's goals. That gets sure. just monetary goals. They're good and all, but they're not. the Today, Like one of my goals right now is putting together some stuff for my wife. Like I, li- one of my goals was I got rid of all my active real estate and I did it for my wife and my kids. I didn't do it for me. Yeah, I could have went and bought 50 more properties. At some point, I'm, if something happens to me, I'm making their life miserable because they don't want to inherit a big pile of crap to go manage. So I was like, no, I got, so a lot of the things I'm planning today are things that I'm doing out of love. Right now I'm working on this thing I call the love letter that Hey, here's my wishes. This is what I like to see you guys do. This is to help you guys out. That kind of stuff. Like, that's awesome. To sit down and take the time to do that. Because I know technically with all the stuff I have, all this crap all over the place, I'm just basically leaving them a big mess. Now, granted, you could say it's better than somebody that didn't leave me anything. Yes and no. Mm. But the, I think there's something to be said for some of that. I think you mentioned the one thing I did a couple of years ago was I forget where I picked it up, but I really sat down with my my calendar and all my appointments and all that. And then I started really focusing on my energy, where I spend my time. And I actually built three columns. And I had stuff I love to do that didn't feel like work at all, stuff that there's no way in hell I should be doing. And then I had the middle column, which was sometimes the trickiest column. It's stuff that you're good at or you could be doing or you feel indifferent about doing, but should you really be doing it anyway? And that's always the, I call that one like the dangerous column and what gives you energy, right? And yeah. there's a lot to be said for that. My life dramatically shifted after I started doing, I really hate freaking doing this. Why am I doing this? Yeah. Why am I spending time in these meetings or with these people or whatever it is? Cut this shit out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What am I doing? And then there's stuff over here I love to do. It doesn't even seem like work. I would do it for free, whatever. And then there's stuff in the middle. 
And then what that does, it does free up time to do more things that you like to do. I spend more time with the people you should be. I have two grown sons and four grandkids, and I can definitely probably spend more time with a lot of different folks. And then also some of your own personal time. I think sometimes we feel guilty about that. We want to always be grinding kind of thing. Yeah. There's a quote that comes to mind because I'm a podcast guy. So I'm just a quote machine, but it's, uh, it's to the tune. I'm trying not to butcher it, but it's to the tune of the man who loves walking will walk further than the man that loves the destination. Right. And so when you said that, that's what made me think of that is, What an awesome focus question. So you talked about the one thing like Gary Keller, Jay Pop is on. So Jay's been on this podcast and buddies with him. So he's coming back on this podcast. Now they just finished their family reunion. He's coming on in a couple of weeks and he's going to go over his takeaways from that. But they talk about the focus question, which is what is the one thing which by doing this, all other things become obsolete or unnecessary. So what's the one thing that you can do? And another focusing question is what you just asked. What would this look like if it was fun? What would this look like if I was just doing the things that were my zone of genius? Do what you do best, delegate the rest. So I'm curious, what can you give us an example of a point that you can remember where leverage really clicked for you? And you were like, holy crap, I can't believe I didn't do this sooner. This just impacted my life in such a significant way that I applied this. It's happened in small ways that later became bigger ways. Okay. In the the very beginning, when I was a contractor and I was working like two full-time jobs and I was a realtor at the same time, uh, but I didn't have capital. And what changed it was credit cards. I started buying houses with credit cards. Damn, don't do that, people. Don't do that. You didn't hear that on this podcast. Dave, it's been fun. Thanks for coming on the podcast, buddy. (laughs) But yeah, capital in general. Capital was the missing link for me at the time. Now, it was on a small scale. Don't take it the wrong way. And then I wouldn't recommend doing that today. You could go get private money or hard money or whatever. But at the time, that's what I did. And I kept recycling that. And then I built a portfolio. Next thing, my uh, properties went up in value. And I had a few million dollars of private of equity and was able to become a lender now. And all of a sudden, I'm lending out. And that's how I got into the note business. I was being a lender to other contractors and other real estate investors, right? And then that snowballed. And it just an effect across all these things. But And then today, look at the amount of capital. We're taking our our private equity. We're marrying it with institutional money. We're buying three and 400 million in assets every year. On the one side, we're doing a hundred million dollars in multi over here. Like we weren't, you know, there was a time I couldn't do any of that stuff. Whereas now it's just compounded over years. But I think it's, you do have to get started and you just have to figure out what are those components. And it's like every business has, I call it three, three pillars. It's really the product, it's capital, and then it's the scalability piece. And it's really trying to figure that out. But sometimes the most important question like for me with the next was for me to get out of the way was the next because I was blocking the growth of the company at some point. You know what I mean? Um, because when, you're, when I'm doing what I do best and I'm also trying to be CEO and I'm wearing all these hats, <clears throat> you end up doing none of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's almost like when you first start your small business, I was uh, halfway decent at marketing, right, for example. So we didn't have a marketing guy. Next thing you know, that becomes your Achilles heel. You're like, yep. you're okay at it, but you're not the marketing guy for a billion dollar company. You're like, wait a minute, right? So yeah. you understand what I mean? Like sometimes when you're wearing all these hats because you could do a little bit of it, you're like, oh, we'll give it to him. He's 
did a little bit of that. He's okay. So we can afford to get somebody later. And 10 years later, you're like, man, that's our biggest problem. We need a real person there. Yeah. My, my coach right now. So I, so because I do these interviews, it's like, I've gotten like an entrepreneurship MBA on steroids over the last year and a half. So I'm very fortunate. And it's such a cool platform because I win because I get free coaching. You guys win because you get platform. And then the audience wins because they get direct access to people and they don't have to work for it. Besides leaving me a rating and a review and buying Dave's book, I'm looking at you guys. Gentleman's agreement. Get it? Got it? Good. <laughs> before, before we transition into note investing, which I'm really interested in, and that's going to be the title and topic and the kind of the figurehead of this show, I want to make a really punctuated a point about how this all began for you because you did this before really the real estate meetups were a thing before these internet like newsletters podcasts all this big stuff was the thing and growing an audience was super sexy and being an influencer you did it organically back in the day and you built businesses you built this 100 million dollar plus business off of the back of this 8000 person list so I want to just punctuate that for people listening about the power of audience and the power of brand. You need to be the freaking person inviting other people to the party. You need to be collecting the emails. You need to be building the list because look at what happened with Dave. That can be you guys in the next 15, 20 years. So I just thought that was a really cool point to emphasize that's glossed over a lot, I feel. Yeah, I mean, that that list becomes the IP, right? It becomes, yep. that's how I build a bank. If you think about it, it's interesting you say that because in the very beginning, I didn't even realize what was happening because you know how you're like networking, I'll call it, where it's, I need to know more people. I need to meet more people. It shifts dramatically when it's not who you know and who knows you. Like Bigger Pockets did that dramatically for me. I know in the beginning, think about it, that started with 12 people at lunch and me and I had, a, who did we have? We had an accountant. I had a self-directed custodian. I had an attorney and we brought their networks and we invited people and then it just grew and grew. But it's an organic list. It's trusted. It's confidence. And then as that list grew, what do you think happened? People came to me to present crazy investment deals. Not crazy, like crazy opportunistic investment deals. And one of the companies, I went to work for this company in New Jersey, helping them raise capital. That started by them presenting at my group. And then we were raising money for mobile home parks and storage centers. Then later on, I was doing it for commercial office condos and then later on for PPR. So it was one of the reasons my partner sought me out was he knew I knew how to raise capital for commercial real estate. Hey, will you help me raise capital for notes? And even the notes business, that was a speaker at one of our meetings who as a gentleman came down from New York, raising capital for delinquent mortgages to buy pools of them. And that's how it started. And then one thing led to another. Now here we are. An accidental business. I was originally trying to be a passive investor. <laughs> we got dragged into being an active Oops. company. And yeah, and it's funny how that works. The accidental 100 million. Hate it. The other thing is, but I am a big fan of, if you think about it, what was sexy about notes? Because I always say we're all in the note business, right? Everything. Everybody that's on this podcast, for example, if you look around the room, everything in your room was financed. Everything was a note. So we're all in the note business. We all have student loans, medical debt, auto debt, mortgages. Now, most of the time I'm referring to notes and mortgages in regards to houses, but there's all kinds of debt out there. So we're, I always say we're all in the note business, 
you just don't realize it. There's a party going on whether you want to attend or not. And it's called finance party. And there's it's everything's being financed, whether you want to pay attention or not. Now you're either writing a check to pay for something. I'm just trying to convince some people to receive checks instead of writing them. And that's really the angle there. But what was sexy about the no business for me was I saw a vehicle that I could buy an asset at a discount with a high yield with collateral that was backed by real estate. And I was really wanting to be a passive guy. I like cash flow without tenants, cash flow without contractors and townships and all the nonsense, right? Fix some so toilets. Was sexy to me. So then I started out with our own money, right? We bought a couple of notes. We literally started with four mortgages. And two were a disaster. One was a home run and one was a grand slam. And if it wasn't for the two that were good, we wouldn't even be here today. But then I started raising money from friends and family. We proofed the model. And then it was raising private equity. And then one thing led to another. And now we take that private equity, we marry it with institutional capital, and it lowers our overall cost of capital. And that's how we're able to make enough of a return to pay our investors, which we've been doing that for 15 years now. Um, so let's dive deep into the whole concept of note investing, all right? Because I don't know of many people that invest in notes, at least people that are on a very sophisticated level. So talk a little bit more about the benefits of note investing. Why should somebody look into it? And then let's walk through a roadmap for how somebody can get involved and started in it. Well, you're saying a lot because it's as big as real estate. And it's almost just, infinite. Just 30 seconds, go. <laughs> almost an infinite number of ways to get into the business. And no one says you have to do it like I did it with mortgages. Right? Everybody pretty much knows what a mortgage is. Yeah, we'll just, for the sake of the example and for this episode, we'll just stick to exactly how you did it to make it easier. Yeah, I started out with junior liens, which I don't know that you could do that today because there isn't a lot of junior liens in the marketplace, right? It was hard to scale it. What it was, you could position yourself into a real estate deal with a very small amount of capital at the time. And then we also had the 2000, remember I started the business in 2007, then we had a crash and then those assets were really cheap, right? So there was- Okay, how you would do it today then? (laughs) It was a little bit of a sweet spot. I don't know that we're gonna see another 2008 in my lifetime. I've just thrown it out there. But it doesn't mean you can't invest in notes with private lending or hard money lending. You could do merchant cash advance, which is business receivables. I do some of these things, right? I invest in different note funds myself. And there's a lot of ways to invest in notes. I'll give you two bizarre examples. I knew a guy that had a heating and air conditioning company. And one day I was talking with him. I said, hey, did you ever think of owning a finance company? for the installation of the heaters. And he's like, oh, there is a company that does that. I go, I know, did you ever think of owning it? And he's like, you can do that? I'm like, yeah, why not? So think about what he was able to do. He could get a deposit for a heating or air conditioning unit. And then now he's financing the labor, right? And now he created a whole nother vertical. And he also gets more uh, service contracts from it, right? So he actually increased the value of his business. And that's the note business, right? It doesn't have to be like Dave's dealing with notes and mortgages. Now, another guy I knew did it. He was a dentist in the Dallas area. I was out to lunch with him and his father. I was like, hey, did you ever think of financing the dental work? He's like, yeah, there's a company that does that. I was like, yeah, did you think you could own one? And he's like, oh, you can do that? I'm like, yeah. So he Dude, you're frying my brain right now. I didn't so know you could. He got together with an orthodontist. They created a dental finance company. And then a couple of years ago, I ran into him and he's like, Dave, you're not going to believe this. The dental finance companies bigger than my dental practice. 
So that's like a concept for people to get their mind around, right? Like you can don't short change yourself. You can finance everything from the grasshopper for the landscaper to it's infinite. That's what I meant. And then a lot of times these debt vehicles, I like notes to pay my liabilities too. So one thing, one of the things I talk about sometimes is how I paid for my youngest son's college with a third of them. He went to college for a third of the cost because what he did was we took student loan money, whether we needed it or not, because I don't want to pull my money out of my investments. We used the student loan money to pay his college. And when it came time to pay it back, we bought some reperforming junior liens, which you're buying at like 30, 40 cents on the dollar, right? So you're basically paying for college for 30 cents, 40 cents on the dollar, right? And the payment from the note is paying the student loan payment. And you can write off some of that. You get the idea. But you can actually go... What the hell? For the third of the money. Or you can... Here's another example of that. I had a buddy that was putting an addition on his house. And let's keep it simple. Say it's a $100,000 addition. He borrowed say $50,000 on his line of credit. And for the $50,000, he went and bought a loan that was performing. And the loan paid back the line of credit. And he got a free addition. Like most people don't think like that. Okay, so a couple of different avenues I want to take that down. Once again, speak to me like I'm a fifth grader here. All right, so first thing is, I see this as two different things. I see this as buying the asset of a note, which a lot of people are unfamiliar with. But then I also see what you talked about, which I think was really cool, which was buying like the financing business. That's something that's really applicable for anybody, especially somebody that's listening to this right now that has a construction company, a flipping company, any type of service-based business, like they can own a financing arm. That's a really cool way to implement M&A to roll up into their business that most people aren't doing, especially in the service world. So for that process, is that something you would recommend buying an existing firm, an existing practice? Is this something that you would start from scratch? What would you recommend? That's funny you said. I just buy them build buckle. Oh my buy them build. Yeah, I love that. I need to get that author on here. <laughs> Walker, I'll probably say his name wrong. Diebel, D-E-I-B-E-L. But no, the right. No one says you have to start from scratch. There's a lot of good companies, especially like all the boomers, like guys my age, they're ready to sell and go sit on the beach, right? There's plenty of companies out there like that. There's no reason that you have to start from scratch. I think there's a lot of good businesses that could be picked up for a good value because there's just not a lot of buyers in the marketplace for some of those businesses. So that's an interesting whole other game of finance that you can play. Is that a, is, are, the, are these companies geographically sandboxed or can they operate anywhere? Are they independent, like geo-independent where you can have a firm that you buy in Portland, but your business operates in Minnesota or is it more localized? Just, it's a little of both. It depends on the business, but I think there's a lot of small business that could be more professionalized, more technology brought in, those kinds of things that would really jack them up, <clears throat> more financing. If they just had more trucks and more men or whatever they were missing, a lot of companies, an infusion of a couple hundred thousand or a half million or a million dollars could really catapult a lot of small businesses. And a lot of them are just not professionally run. They're just like we were just talking about where it revolved around the owner. You know, there was just no, or there's no administrative back office or there's no marketing machine or there's, it's easy enough for someone like me, more on a consulting 30,000 foot view to go, 
hey, this is the gap in this business. You can come in and plug these couple holes and really churn and burn this thing. But yeah, no, I think it's all in fun. <laughs> You're the type of dude that I talk about in my example of like mastermind groups where it's just like you get really pissed off because in a good way where it's like you have this burning problem in your business for five years and you sit down at a bar next to a guy wearing flip-flops and he's having a beer next to you and he's like, over here's your conversation. He goes, oh, like, I fixed that 20 years ago. Here's what you do. And it solves your problem in five minutes. That's what I feel like right now. <laughs> I think most of us know what the problem is. We don't always have the will or capacity to fix it. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. It's funny. Like when you talk to people, they know what their problem is sometimes, you know? Yeah. And that's the best definition I've heard of coaching is in my coach tells me it's not really giving you more information. It's more so just like color coordinating and recalibrating the wires in your brain to where they're going to the correct switches. He goes, and then everything's organized and you know where to go. So let's now go to the pro actual process of buying notes. So for somebody like I've never bought notes, I buy real estate, I have a mortgage with it. Somebody, some asshat buys the mortgage three times after I do the property and then I have to pay three other people. That's the only experience I have with notes. So for somebody that's listening to this, maybe they own a couple of rental properties. Maybe they own a small business, car washes, laundromats, whatever have you. Maybe they're at that seven-figure mark. What's the process of buying notes? It's The answer is going to be it depends on of course. what you buy, where you buy, what kind of notes you buy. And especially on the residential side, there's a lot of compliance, right? Whereas on the commercial note side, there, it's not as crazy with the compliance piece. So that's why one of the reasons like our ideal avatar is really a fund investor, which is usually a high net worth person who already made their money in real estate or something and is looking to do something more passive and diversified. I think that's what we bring to the table. We bring that consistent coupon payment, cash flow without tenants. It's back what I was describing earlier, where you're investing in a well-diversified fund. But the minute somebody comes in our fund, they own thousands of assets all over the country, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you're super diversified in real estate right away. You're cash flowing monthly or you can compound and you're real estate backed assets, right? So you, most real estate investors understand what we do, right? So it's like a, if somebody wants to come into that alternative space, we're a great vehicle to do that. And we're also fairly liquid in short term. Some real estate investing is more like a REIT or a syndication that could be five, seven, 10 years in length. Ours is six months to three years. So you can see the window we fill. And some investment vehicles are a one-year investment or a six-month investment. So it's there's different investments. I know when I look at my strategy, it's short-term, mid-term, long-term, tax advantage, not tax advantage. And I invest in what I know. That's the extent of my secret sauce. So it's nothing crazy. Yeah. So yeah, it's different things for different people. And we just offer one of those vehicles that may fit a portion of someone's portfolio. We're not asset managers where we want to take everyone's money and manage it all for them. That's not who we are. We think people should be diversified somewhat and should have some things. And if we can help people be passive investors, I've been traveling around the country for the last couple of months with my wife. And I'm visiting investors all over the place. And it's really cool. All their stories are great. Like what we are enabling them to do. They can go off and travel and they can go do this or they can take care of a loved one and all the different things they can do from that passive money 
especially if they're in retirement and things like that. So what returns? So what does this process look like investing with you guys as opposed to doing like a multifamily syndication? And then piggyback question off the top of that. Is this something that's open to purely accredited investors or are is there a non-accredited option as well? This is... From our firm, it's open to accredited only into our funds today. We are doing, we're considering doing a Reg A fund some point where it would be open to everyone. But there are some funds out there that do open up to both unaccredited and accredited. And anyone can buy a note to what you were alluding to earlier. So you don't have to be a high net worth person other than notes are expensive. <laughs> you have to have some money. Um, so what do you mean by that? <laughs> so when you say expensive... So like, I don't understand, I still don't understand the actual literal process of buying a note. I know real estate, I put 5%, 10%, 20% down of the cash value, I get the real estate. I know with the cash flow with the business, I could buy it for 5x revenue. I put down maybe 10%, seller carry the rest. I understand that. I've just never bought a note. If you bought a first mortgage at a discount, it might be non-performing or something, but it might be backed by equity, hopefully. Yeah. And you buy that at a discount. So you might buy a $100,000 mortgage for 60, 70 grand or whatever. Okay. There's variables that go into that. It depends how long it's delinquent, if it's vacant, all these different variables. But at the end of the day, you're buying, it's just like, you know, it's like the We Buy Houses business, but you're getting to the front of the line. You're ahead of everybody in the We Buy Houses world because you're buying it from the bank. In our case, we're buying delinquent mortgages in bulk from banks at a discount. So if you think about it, we're, you get ahead of everybody because you're ahead of the sheriff's sale. So if you went to the sheriff's sale, I don't know if you ever went to the sheriff's sale, but if you did, all the attorney for the bank, that's my attorney. He's representing a company like mine or he's representing a bank. So we're on the other side okay. of the aisle selling assets, if that gives you color. So you have a $100,000 mortgage that's delinquent. You buy it for sixty. So what's the upside benefit of that if it's already delinquent? Well, we can take it to sale. And then if it does, if it sells at sale, the most you can get paid is what your payoff is. So hopefully your payoff's more than what you bought it for. And if it doesn't sell at sale, you can take it back and then you can sell it through the MLS or whatever. And you can also fix it up and sell it. You can fix it up and rent it. You can sell it as is. We sell hundreds of properties a year throughout the country. Now, you don't have to be a high net worth person to buy an REO property from us. They're typically marketed through REO agents, though. So you're... So it's crazy because you're doing an arbitrage play off of the debt, not off of the asset, but it's debt based on the asset. Yeah. So it's because we have so many people that come on here that are wholesalers, syndicators, flippers. They buy the property. They fix it up. A lot of burr. A lot of burst strategy. So you're playing it. And I would imagine the velocity of this is much higher to do it how you do it. It's a lot more scalable. Yeah. So if I went to a wholesaler, I could say something like this. How many houses can you fix and flip in a month? Yeah. Or I would say a question like this. If you had unlimited capital, how many deals could you flip in a month? Or if you had, or if the deals were free, how many could you do in a month? That's a scalability question. The note business, it's a lot more, right? Because it's all capital. It's not... How much can we physically? It is to a point. How many asset managers can man? How many loans can an asset manager manage? Sure, it's several hundred. But oh my a wholesaler is not handling hundreds of houses a month. Like my REO agent in house, I could go to Amy and say, "Hey, can you liquidate these thousand properties?" And she'd go, "Okay." 
If I went to a regular realtor and said, can you sell a thousand houses in, I'm in Nashville right now. If I said, can you sell a thousand houses in Nashville? The realtor would go, well, I can't do that. Like, that would blow their mind if I said liquidate these. But an REO agent's different, right? Yeah. So when you offload these in your portfolio, if you were to go sell a thousand notes, right? So who do you sell those to? Is that Fannie Freddie? Is it the government agencies? Is it like, who do you sell to? Normally not who we sell to. We do buy from some government agencies. And I have my partner, John, runs an acquisitions team. And then we have a JV partner as well. They have a trade desk in New York. So we can buy and sell pretty quickly. They can sell hundreds of loans in a matter of... So you can sell notes very quickly. I can, I'm not saying you can't sell a house quickly, but not normally, not in volume. It's not normal. I'm going to sell normally a thousand houses in two days or three days. You're not going to do that. Yeah. Whereas notes and mortgages, you can sell it very quickly. Got it. Does that make oh sense? Oh my God. So it's, yeah. It's much yeah. more scalable and much more. Um, yeah. So you can be able to, you can be able to move faster and then be able to grow faster. Okay. We have a lot more liquidity too. So like we have lines of credit. We could take a pool of mortgages and drop it on our line and recapitalize and then go make a commercial real estate purchase or another trade of loans another package. So we can move money quicker. And then we can also reduce our cash drag that way. we can buy have a JV partner. We own 20% of a company that originates hard money loans in 45 states. We have the right to buy those loans because we give them the capital lend. And then we have the right to buy those loans once they're originated. And then if we need money, we can drop the loans on a line or we can sell them on the secondary market in New York. So we can quickly move. So you're very nimble. You can Take advantage of- a, a big takeaway I'm taking from this is be in the business of supplying the cap, be in the capital business, like just be in the capital business in general. Like the banks are the best business ever because like they control the flow of capital. Yeah. You said a pivotal moment had taken a money and banking course in college and it was probably one of the most important classes I took the whole time. And at the time, I didn't know it. It was being taught by an economist. I didn't even know. I didn't know what economics was. I was like, but that course stuck with me for some reason. And I always look at what would the bank do? Because what the bank wants you to do and what they do are two different things. And once you start acting more like the bank, it definitely changes your view on it. There's a lot of money just made on the finance side of everything. I'm still just stuck on the fact that just like in my brain, I'm like, if I was a service, I'm still can't get over it. If I was a service company, I would just buy a financing company and then just use that for all the customers and then have my competitors that'd be like, all right, well, use my financing company if you want to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's just like collections is a whole nother business. Just there's all these different businesses that come off of banking. It's it's their inefficiency. Ours is our opportunity kind of thing. There's always businesses that prop up from that, but there's a lot that revolves around the financing end. Cause just a lot of times you'll hear that with people, especially like in this market with real estate, people are like, Oh, there's not enough deals or there's, what do you do in this market or interest rates are too high. There's always deals there. It's just how you, if the deal is actually the asset or is the deal in the financing, you know, there's more than one way to create a deal. If the seller holds paper and it's 0% interest, is that a deal? Did you pay too much because you gave them a little extra? Maybe, but if you had a 30-year mortgage, you would have paid a lot to that mortgage company. <laughs> like, you got to look at the whole picture. You can't just be tunnel vision on, oh, I make my money on the buy. Yeah, you do, but you also make <laughs> how you structure the deal and the financing, all that part of it. It's not just, I made it on the buy. 
Fair. It's a narrow view of the world. So somebody invests in your fund, somebody that's listening to this is accredited and they're like, okay, I like what Dave's saying. What returns do you offer on your fund? How, what's your payouts and what's your minimum investment? Our minimum is 50,000 terms, three years, and our yield is 12%. And it's ACH monthly or people can compound. If they compound, it ends up being like 14.47. And we also have a fund for qualified plans to where there's no UBIT involved. So there's, we get a lot of qualified plan money. We get a lot of investors. We get a lot of repeat business, obviously, over the years. Now yeah. we do it shorter terms. We have a, a one-year option that's 12%. Wait, excuse me. 10%. I, it's 12% for three years. Yeah, I'll edit that part out. <laughs> All good. Uh, and yeah. then there is a six-month six option at 6%. And that minimum's lower. It's 25000 But a lot of times that's for somebody that's putting money for to pay a bill or something. But I mean, that's a no-brainer. If you, if I was accredited, like we, even if you're accredited and you're parking money away to buy that next property and you've got $100,000 that's sitting around and you've got in a bank account, then you could just, even if you deploy, deployed it in that six month fund, you just, it's something that's secured and you get 6%. That's a no-brainer. It's not that if you think about the higher rate funds, because I know I used to manage a lot of real estate years ago as a property manager at a Remax and did all those kinds of things. And if you think about a piece of real estate, if the property's making north of a 30% yield on that, you start to get into a point, where is that thing? It's got to be somewhere crazy at some point. And if you go lower than that, when you factor in maintenance and management, what are you really making? And that's where I keep coming back to, hey, we're a vehicle for people to passively make pretty much the same money they were making anyway. They just didn't know it because they were doing all the work and they're standing in line at Home Depot. And I'm guilty. I was that guy where it's eight o'clock at night. And I'm like, why am I in Home Depot? Fair. Um, but it's, and then you start to realize you don't have to be, if you have the right partners, you got to have trusted partners to do some of these things. But there's ways to invest in real estate passively that you'll do just as well as when you were active and still get the depreciation. I invest in a lot of syndications and different things. So some things are for cash flow, some things are for tax advantage, some things are, that's why I think it's a, uh, it's a, a multitude of things that you can do passively. And that's what I enjoy. I like going around talking to other investors about how they invest, what they do, what's their next, what's their legacy plans, how are they investing, what gaps do they have in their portfolios, how can I help them? It's really about helping other people achieve that goal of being able to do that next, to go where they want, when they want, with who they want. Perfect. Where can people find you to learn? The easiest is probably uh, pprcapitalmanagement.com. And that's capital M-G-M-T. I should say that. M-G-M-T.com. And I'm, believe it or not, I'm still in bigger pockets and LinkedIn and talk to investors through there. There you go. Yeah. All right. Appreciate it, brother. Man, dear God. Came in here and you just dropped the atomic bomb of knowledge on everyone. Oh, my God. This is awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, my pleasure, bro. All right, everyone, this has been Brian and Dave with the Action Academy Podcast, signing off.